0: Ronald Reagan loved to talk about America as a, quote, city on a hill. The phrase originated with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in the book of Matthew. But Reagan referenced a more modern source. In a sermon given in 1630, John Winthrop, the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, had urged Puritans coming to the New World to take inspiration from Jesus' words. For we must consider that we shall be a city upon a hill, he wrote, the eyes of all people are upon us. Reagan wasn't the first politician to appropriate Winthrop, nor would he be the last. So why does the image of America as a city on a hill resonate so? And for that matter, why do we consistently look to the pilgrims and the Puritans as our nation's forefathers, rather than, say, the Spanish, who arrived four decades earlier, or the earlier British arrivals who settled in Jamestown? Abram C. Van Engen explores those questions in his new book. He's an associate professor of English at Washington University and also an associate professor at the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics. And his book is titled City on a Hill, A History of American Exceptionalism. Joining me in studio to talk about it is Abram C. Van Engen. Abram, welcome to the show. Thanks. So you trace the idea um, of City on a Hill to John Winthrop's sermon. But that sermon didn't really make a major splash at the time. In fact, I learned in your book it was forgotten for a long time. Why is that?
1: Yeah, it was totally unknown for over 200 years. Uh, What's interesting about it is we know so little about this sermon. So presumably he delivered it, but where, we don't exactly know. And all that we have left is a copy of it in somebody else's handwriting. most likely, it just didn't make that big a splash when it was delivered, and nobody really felt the need to sort of publicize it and uh, send it around. So it was it was lost, unknown, untalked about for over 200 years.
0: So your book kind of goes deep into the twists and turns that it took for yeah. this to become such a touchstone. And there's so many figures where yeah. – so many interesting figures where you explore the role they played. If you had to pick just one person who turned this into the thing that it is, who, who would you pick?
1: Uh, most likely Perry. Miller, who was this historian at Harvard in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and he um, really chose this sermon to define America, uh, and he set it as the sort of cornerstone and beginning of America and all that he wanted America to stand for. So. He specifically left Jamestown out of the picture. He said, it lacked the coherence with which I could coherently begin. That's his phrase. Uh, and he turned our eyes to uh, to the Puritans. He said, that's what America's all about. That's where America begins. And, he, and that sort of took off from there.
0: So I don't want to digress too far into this, but he is such a fascinating character. Yeah. I think of everybody in this book. I, I loved him the best. Yeah. You have this great scene where his students um, hear him having this argument, mm-hmm. and then they open the door, and it turns out he was arguing with himself. Self. Yes. Um, does this touchstone come from somebody who is a little bit nutty? Uh,
1: yes. Uh, yeah, he was a larger-than-life figure who I would never have wanted as a teacher, and yet would have loved to have as a teacher. I mean, he was—he was. He was um, He was sort of bombastic, incredibly arrogant, uh, and also um, just really dedicated to the life of the mind. So it's one of these really mixed figures who's somewhat tragic and also somewhat horrific at the same time.
0: And he's the one who ends up bringing this into the consciousness to the point that all the politicians start picking up on it?
1: Yeah. I mean, in a way, he makes it the the sort of academic mantra. So what's really interesting is the relationship between academic circles and political circles moving forward after World War II too, because there was actually a lot of um, interrelation and working together. And so in a way, As academics uh, following Perry Miller are building the Puritans into this story of America, it's also getting picked up then first by JFK and then later, most famously, by Reagan.
0: So let's talk a little bit about that story. I I have to admit, I never really questioned why do we start at Plymouth Rock rather than at Jamestown or or even the Native Americans who are here first. Um, What do you think it is about this narrative that Americans love so much?
1: Well, it's really clear. I mean, what I love to trace in the book is the rise of uh, textbooks the first history textbooks in America, which are very consciously choosing the Pilgrims as a starting point. And what they're trying to do, first of all, a lot of these textbooks are coming out of New England, and they're coming out of the North. And what they're trying to do is basically say the South is not really America. I mean, once they get on board, they could be America, but they're not really America. And so what that does is it it sidelines the issue of slavery. If they can make Pilgrims the foundation of America then they don't really have to talk about slavery as really American.
0: And yet, as you say in the book, something else, I'll be honest, I didn't know. um, These pilgrims or, or the Puritans, slavery was also a thing for them for a while. Yeah,
1: they had their own slaves, yes, and they enslaved Native Americans. And they also built a lot of their wealth on shipping slaves. So... Uh, So it was very much still a part of the broader slave economy, and yet by talking about pilgrims as coming here for religious freedom, you could begin to narrate a totally different story.
0: And so where does that end up going? Like, once you've decided this is the story about America, um, what does that mean for what we should do going forward?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that sounds so interesting in this book is the function of these origin stories, because... Uh, you'll see fe- folks like Daniel Webster, who was a really important orator and, and politician from the 1800s, saying, "Look, we start in the Pilgrims, and now our job is basically to transmit their legacy unimpaired to the next generation." So these, the way American exceptionalism often works, is it finds this origin that sets up the ideals as a kind of flash of revelation uh and then our job going forward is just to stay true to that origin that's that's what every generation afterwards has to do we have to stay true uh but of course what those ideals are could be argued about debated from one person to another
0: i found myself thinking back to the textbooks that i'd used when i was in school and this certainly rang true for me it feels like these were the stories i was taught are these still the stories we're telling kids today, or has uh, less that changed? So,
1: less so. I mean, one of the things you see is how often now. I mean, any new history textbook uh, uh, about America is debated. So, uh, the New York Times recently had a piece comparing California national history textbooks to Texas national history textbooks, and and it it's part of this thing that people feel really invested in American national history, national history of the United States, because. They feel like it points us where we ought to go now. It, it, mm-hmm. it sort of positions us where we are now. And that's kind of the role of American exceptionalism is to create this historical narrative that really gives purpose to the present day.
0: Now, you make this case that Winthrop's Sermon is what everybody's sort of basing this idea on, but you also have some people, like I'm thinking of Jeremy Belknap, who um, our listeners might not know who he is, so give us a little bio here. So he
1: founded the Massachusetts Historical Society uh, in the late 1700s, and he's just a super interesting, he, he he was a minister, he committed his life to telling American history, and it was really following the American. Revolution, he said, Hey, look, we got to collect all the historical documents we can find, house them, store them, keep them for future generations because everybody's going to want to know about American history.
0: (laughs) And kind of, I guess he was right about that. In a way. (laughs) So he plays this valuable role here. But as you note, that he could not have read this sermon at a time that he's using this phrase, city on a hill. So why do you think of Winthrop's sermon as being so critical? to this narrative when maybe it could just go back to Jesus's original use.
1: Yeah, so I- what I um, love about this is there are just a few figures who do talk about America as a city on a hill before they know about Winthrop. But once you find Winthrop, and really Belknap is important because they the the MHS is the first place that prints the sermon. It mm-hmm. makes it public. Once you find Winthrop, then you can actually tell an origin story. You could say, oh, look, here's the sermon at the start of America that really set us up as a city on a hill. And it, so it, it comes back again to this need, this drive for these mythological origin stories. Once Winthrop said that, it gave us this purpose ever since.
0: So we almost needed Winthrop to link us to this idea from Jesus.
1: Yeah. So it could float around, but it didn't really take off until people bought into that origin story.
0: So Winthrop's sermon, it was just fascinating to learn, as as we mentioned earlier, um, the neglect, you know, for for hundreds of years, no one was paying attention to this thing or talking about it. And one of the fascinating points you draw out is we don't even have a complete copy of this sermon today what led you to this conclusion that what we have is basically three-fifths of yeah. this sermon
1: so um, I mean I study Puritan sermons for a living I'm sure everyone is jealous um, and but one of the things you you get to know studying Puritan sermons is that they are in fact a genre and they have a form and and there, there are pieces that go in place and and we use genres because they help our readers expect what to come next or what to come first this follows the standard genre form of a Puritan sermon, except that it's missing the first two parts. Mm-hmm. And so when you kind of lay it out, you realize pretty quickly, wait a second, this looks exactly like a Puritan sermon missing the beginning.
0: So the Puritan sermon always starts with the scripture. This doesn't, this just charges right, right. into him interpreting it. Which would be it.
1: Um, really hard to believe that John Winthrop would try, you know, this, this, this hardcore Puritan guy would, would try to give directions and instructions to his followers without for turning first to scripture.
0: And so we have this kind of half version of this famous sermon, and now, as you point out in your book, Everybody's using it. We think of Reagan as using it. It wasn't just Republicans. Both the right, right. and the left have explicitly yes. tied remarks to this sermon. How do they use this sermon differently?
1: Yeah. So what I found really interesting, so Michael Dukakis is trying to respond to Reagan in, in 1988. And by that point, Reagan had made Winthrop really the foundation of America, This City on Hill sermon. So what Dukakis does is really interesting. He turns to the same sermon, does not talk about America as a city on a hill, but instead quotes other lines from Winthrop's sermon as the key foundational part of America. So he talks about Winthrop set us up as a community to love together, to rejoice together, to mourn together, to suffer together. And that move by Dukakis is then repeated by a whole bunch of Democrats after him.
0: So they're kind of trying to claim maybe the communal part of this address. Yes. But then Obama, you say, he restores the city on the hill. What was he up to
1: there? Well, in part it was an address he gave in Boston, so you can see the kind of link there. Uh, But you know, he goes full on for it. He says, you know, Winthrop created us as a city on a hill, and that was an improbable idea that we've been ever trying to live into ever since. So it is different than Reagan, because what Reagan said is, we are a city on a hill, and we need to maintain that status. And what Obama said is, we were called to be a city on a hill, and we need to achieve that status.
0: Hmm. It sort of encapsulates the difference between those two figures in a nutshell. I mean, really, their response to this one phrase tells us so much about what Obama and Reagan had in common and where they completely ended up separating. Yeah. We're talking to Abram C. Van Engen about his book, uh, City on a Hill, a History of American Exceptionalism. He's a professor of English at Washington University. Um, And Obama, um, as we say, he liked the phrase City on a Hill. Yeah. Donald Trump seems to be a break yeah. from the norm of everyone liking yes. this phrase and using it. He has he never used this phrase to your knowledge? Uh, uh,
1: he he hadn't to the point of writing and finishing that book. I I would have to go back and check if he has sense. But no, he never uses this phrase. In fact, he came out in 2015 and specifically said, I don't like American exceptionalism. (laughs) It's rude, he said. Of all the things that could be rude, that was rude to him.
0: (laughs) And so how do you see that, his perspective on American exceptionalism, how does that translate into his policy as president?
1: Yeah, so I end the book talking about the difference between America first and American exceptionalism. And really, I see them to be opposite forms of rhetoric. American exceptionalism builds a kind of mythological, historical narrative of America that sets up these high ideals like democracy or liberty or whatever that were with us from the beginning that we're called to live into. America First really doesn't have an interest in history. It's not about history, it's hmm. about every nation is basically the same, not one better than another. And we're all competing and struggling together. uh, And it's a sort of survival of the fittest. And the point is to win. And winning makes others lose.
0: You say that, uh, quote, both forms of rhetoric have their hazards. What's the hazard in this this sort of old fashioned city on a hill, the the Reagan definition of it?
1: The hazard is the erasure of all that doesn't fit the story. Mm -hmm. So if you tell a story about ever progressing liberty, then what about everybody whose liberty was not there? Uh, and and can you actually incorporate them into the story. So um, when you pick an origin, when you say this thing is first, then everything that existed before it is suddenly gone, it's erased. Mm-hmm. So if pilgrims in 1620 are the first, then the arrival of the enslaved in 1619 suddenly disappears from your story. And actually, of course, that is a huge part of the American story. You sure. can't tell American uh, history without that. So uh so the the danger is this sort of blindness to your own faults and failings and a, and a kind of willingness to overlook them.
0: And so the hazard that comes with the, the Trump version of America first. Yeah, it's
1: interesting. So uh, you know, if 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 the danger of American exceptionalism is sort of overwhelming confidence, which is to say We're the greatest nation in the world. How should we do our greatness? How how should it serve us? The danger with America First is just overwhelming insecurity. Hmm. Um, It's the idea that others are getting ahead. We need to get it back for ourselves. We need to get ahead ourselves. So so if George W. Bush was saying, how do we bring democracy to every country in the world and end tyranny in our day? Uh, Donald Trump is saying, literally, I want to take back everything from the world that we've given them. So, the danger there is just a kind of there aren't any ideals anymore. It's just about sort of material gain, getting ahead. Um, we, we've lost the sense. I mean, he, he seldom discusses democracy, liberty, all these other high ideals that are built into American exceptionalism.
0: That's interesting. I'd never thought of that that way before, but you're making a really compelling case here. So, <laughs> now, this book, it had so many interesting digressions. And one of them I feel like might be especially interesting to St. Louis audiences, and that involves the great German sociologist yeah. Max Weber. I had no idea. He came to St. Louis in yeah. 1904. What was he doing here?
1: Uh, he came for, uh, in 1904 for the World's Fair, they also brought in scholars from all across the world to give talks. And he gave a talk at Wash U. Uh, and it was in the midst of writing what became his classic uh, Weber thesis. It was right in the middle of writing that. So the Weber, you know, he he makes Puritans into the origin of capitalism, basically Calvinism. Uh, gives us capitalism. That's a very crude summary. But anyway, it'll have to do for now. Uh, So in the midst of writing that thesis, or what became known as the Weber thesis, he gives this talk working out these ideas right here at WashU.
0: So should we be insulted that here he comes to such a Catholic city, (laughs) and then he ends up inventing this idea that, oh, the Protestants, they are everything in America.
1: You know, I think that what's interesting is that all these folks, Tocqueville also, um, they travel all around the United States, and everywhere they go, they pick up this story about the Puritans. Uh, I mean they get it first from New Englanders who are really insistent about it but then they're still picking it up from schools in other states in part because these textbooks out of New England have gone to all these schools in all these different states
0: it's interesting with Weber he, he seems like a digression and yet he does play an important role yeah. in your thesis um, how did he help bring things together for people intellectually when it comes to this issue of the Puritans
1: yeah so there was this rising tradition of saying um, the Puritans were were, were terrible and we we have since escaped from their grip, and that's wonderful. This um, is sort
0: of influenced by the Nathaniel Hawthorne school. Yeah, They're exactly. just repressive. Exactly. And, and yeah. that
1: was rising in the late 19th century. At the same time as you have this rising celebration of the pilgrims for bringing us tolerance, liberty, and all these other good things. And so basically what Weber does is he ties all of these traditions together. He says, look, the Puritans um, did form de- democratic traditions. They also did hate the arts and everything else, and they did oppress other people. But it was because of that that they actually devoted themselves to business and created the models of capitalism that we have today. <laughs> and so, I mean, basically every tradition you see rising and opposing one another, he finds a way to weave them all together.
0: He's kind of a genius. So he's kind of a genius. Yeah, we, yes. have to, we have to respect that work he did, <laughs> and now there's a St. Louis angle on it, so yeah. I'm excited. Bigger Picture, City on a Hill, it, it, it's a really interesting book. And part of what I find myself wondering about is how it even began. Was there one piece of this that you were looking at that led to the whole thing? Or? Yeah.
1: I, I mean, it's it began by me not knowing, though I should have known, that actually Winthrop was totally unknown. I mean, Hmm. that that this sermon was totally unknown. Because so many scholars of the Puritans had used it to explain the Puritans themselves. So this began just as a regular old scholarly project, interested in explaining the Puritans. And of course, I'm using that sermon to do it. And then it turns out that none of the Puritans read it or paid attention to it Hmm. or published it or knew about it. So how can you use it to explain them? Uh, That was my first question, and then I kind of took off from there.
0: That seems like one of those questions where many scholars would have responded by being like oh i guess i'll just write around this part yeah you do you really like rabbit holes or
1: yes
0: (laughs) okay it's funny how i picked up on this yes at at what point did you realize hey i think this is actually a book
1: Um, what i really wanted to do was find a way to get at how we narrate american history more broadly And I wanted to tell a story that was uh, one step removed from saying there were so many stories that said the Puritans gave us America, here's how. And then they would go on for 300 years, the Puritans did this. And then I want to take a step back and say, why do we tell those stories to begin with? And actually, it's part of that story uh, to do it, to, to move from 1630 to the present day. So I, that's kind of how it took off. And then I also was just super interested in all these rabbit holes, as you say. I mean, we don't have this sermon at all unless we have the Massachusetts Historical Society to print it. We don't have that, um, the sermon, unless the New York Historical Society saves it and so on. So, so I want to know, well, how come we have those? Um, So... Questions lead to questions.
0: So for the lay reader who might pick up this book and be getting just a crash course in in a whole bunch of American history, what would you hope that they take away from it?
1: I think that I would love for people to um, think about how we tell national history. We need to do national history, but it is so hard to see with clear eyes both the things that we can celebrate and the things that we can mourn. And the question is, a narrative, by its very nature, is going to tie it all together. What happens when we tie it together? What do we lose when we tie it together into a coherent narrative? Do we need an origin story, or can we just accept that there are so many different origins, all of them contributing to American culture?
0: So would you like to see this phrase, city on a hill, in the post-Trump era, whether that comes in in a <laughs> year or in four years? Would you want to see that come back, or would you be happy to see that yeah. have been jettisoned?
1: The best part about what I do is that I don't have to be a politician. Uh, So I don't know. So the thing with Obama and Clinton using it uh, and others is that I don't know how politicians mobilize an electorate. It may be that they need to use certain terms of American exceptionalism to, to, to get the job done. And that can cut both ways. What's interesting is that in the 2016 election, those most committed to American exceptionalism were most in favor of immigration rights, refugees. They were most opposed to Donald Trump. So, I mean, this thing cuts every which way. And um, I don't have to make that choice. So in, I'd say in historical work, it is it is mostly dead, and I'm happy with that.
0: Well, Abram C. Van Engen, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Um, Abram's book is City on a Hill, A History of American Exceptionalism, and there's a lot of great history in here, so I hope people give it a read. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU.